Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics, Part 15, Gender and Sexual Ethics. Here, I consider objection number three to Christianity. Of course, there are many more objections than I can adequately cover in this course, but this one covers the basic Christian sexual ethics, including marriage, divorce, pornography, homosexuality, cohabitation, and adultery. Sadly, Since this was the last lecture, time did not permit for a thorough analysis of these subjects. Even so, I touched on each briefly and biblically in an effort to stake out a Christian position on each and give some evidence to equip you to give an answer to those who might question you. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is... The final and concluding lecture of Apologetics, number 15, Gender and Sexual Ethics. A lot of the controversial issues of our time regarding this subject really come down to whether or not you accept the Bible as authoritative. The sexual ethics of the Bible are not really that complicated. In other words, it's not like you have a lot of theological debate about them, about these verses. Um, so, for example, on marriage, what does, what does the Scripture teach? The Pharisees came up and tested him, to uh, Jesus, and they said, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Right? So that's Jesus' theology on marriage. It's rooted in creation. Jesus is like, well, God said they're one flesh, uh, so you you shouldn't separate them, right? And then, of course, they they came back and they're like, wait a second. Verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, and this is the important part, Matthew 19, 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And that kind of wigs out the disciples a little bit. When it comes to these scriptures, and we have other scriptures on the subject in 1 Corinthians 7, is the other main place that talks about marriage and divorce. The scriptures are actually very easy to understand. They're not, they're not complicated. It's, it's, it's saying you need to stay together because God put you together and you need to be honorable and stick with your commitment. There's nothing in here about not getting along. There's nothing in here about no-fault divorce. There's nothing in here about a lot of things. Now, could there be other situations that come up? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 7 addresses other situations that come up when you have a believer and an unbeliever, right? But he never advocates the believer initiating divorce. Never. 
uh, except for what Jesus says, which is for adultery. I think you could possibly make a case for physical violence, a separation on the basis of that. But the real question is, what does Jesus allow divorce for? No, he says it right there, sexual immorality. And that's the word pornea, which is translated sexual immorality. And this word pornea is equivalent to the English translation fornication. And if you look up the word fornication in the dictionary, it says consensual sexual intercourse between two persons not married to each other. So, I mean, there can be all kinds of, that could be premarital sex, that could be adultery, that could be, well, maybe, maybe that's it. <laughs> but there, there are lots of different situations where that might happen. And it's a broad word, and it's the word from which we get the term pornography, right? Pornography is, graphy is the Greek word for writing or drawing, like a graph is a drawing. So if you draw porn or you depict porn, it's pornography. Basically, what you're watching in a porn is what you're not supposed to do. So, therefore, you should not watch pornography, obviously. Okay, so there are three views of marriage. I want to just mention this to you. This is something you might have come across before or might not. Uh, I don't remember who informed me of this, but I found it very helpful. Of course, there could be more than three. These are, these are just the three I want to talk about. The Western view of marriage says it's good so long as I'm happy. The traditional, oh, it was Timothy Keller who was talking about this. The traditional view of marriage is it's good so long as it helps the family or clan. Traditional people live in bigger groups. And then there's the biblical view of marriage, which is my marriage is a living illustration of Christ and the church. That's Ephesians 5, 31 to 33. Okay, and so these are, these are three different views of what marriage is. The first one there is Western, our Western culture is all rooted in individualism because of the Enlightenment movement, which happened a few hundred years ago in Europe and then came over here. And so the idea is that if I don't get along with my spouse, if I'm not feeling fulfilled in my marriage, if I'm not happy with having these kids, if I'm not satisfied with whatever about my marriage, I should be able to get a divorce, right? The mat, yeah, if it's just the light has dimmed and the fire has grown cold, right? And so that's the Western view of marriage. And that's why in America we have what's called no-fault divorce, which means that it's not anybody's fault. You just get a divorce. You don't have to establish that somebody breached the marriage contract, all right? Then you have the traditional view of marriage in traditional societies, which some Americans, especially immigrants, will bring with them traditional values. I had a friend, Amir, in college that he was going to build onto his parents' house, and he's from Pakistan, and bring her into the home. And then they were just like, yeah, I guess keep building the house bigger and bigger. I don't know. It was already pretty big. So anyhow, so that's traditional. It's good so long as it helps the family or clan. You put the group first in the traditional view. You might have a terrible life, but by staying, are you adding stability? Are you adding some usefulness to the group? Then you will stay. It's not about you, it's about us, okay? And then the biblical view is that your, your marriage is really not about you and it's really not about your group. What your marriage is is, is a witness that testifies 
to the beauty of Christ and the church and the love and the submission that Christ and the church share, according to Ephesians 5. So this is a whole different way of thinking about marriage. And you know what? They had divorce in the time of Jesus. But we must press on to the next point. The next point is that when it comes to the subject of sex outside of marriage or pornography as well, or homosexuality we could say as well, Jesus used the strongest language. When did Jesus use the strongest language? It was when he talked about lust. Do you remember that? In Matthew 5, right? This is Matthew 5, 28. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members. And he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw away. That's extreme language. You're probably used to hearing it, right? The shock value of it has worn off for you. But just momentarily consider advising somebody to rip out their eye or to maim their body by slicing off their hand because they can't deal with lust properly. That's a really strong way to put things. And that's how Jesus treated it. He did not treat it as, oh, it's just some minor thing. You know, you're just maturing. You're going through the same thing that everybody goes through. It's no big deal. You sleep around a little bit. You figure it out. That's not the way Jesus treated it. Jesus treated it as even the thought was as bad as the act itself. So, I mean, as Christians, that's where our stake is in the ground is with Jesus. And besides that, cohabitation that's living together before marriage, it's not even good from a secular perspective. Consider for a moment these secular arguments against cohabitation. It turns out that people that cohabitate are 46% more likely to end in divorce than people that don't live together before they get married. And 40% of those cohabitating have children in the home, even though the commitment between the husband and the wife is not there because they're not actually husband and wife. And so the problem is for kids, as a pastor, I've seen this sort of thing because I know what kind of shape our society is in sadly. You see it with the kids. They get attached to this girlfriend or this boyfriend that happens to be living with them for a while. That one leaves. It doesn't work out. And the stat is that after five years, 50% of these couples that have kids in the house split up compared to only 15% if they're married. So it's 50% within five years split up if you're cohabitating and only 15% if you're married. And everybody knows that for the kids, it just screws with their heads. It really messes with you because a kid is not capable of correctly understanding the world around them, that, that the world doesn't revolve around them. Kids are convinced that everything is about them. And so when mommy and daddy split up, it's my fault. And that's the standard interpretation. It doesn't matter how many times the parents say, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. It doesn't matter. A kid can't, they just can't process it. So cohabitation messes with kids and it decreases your chances at a good marriage. That's not even biblical reasons. Those are just logical reasons. And I don't care if all the TV shows show it as fun and economical and exciting. Right, right, right. Yeah. The question is, who, who's your Lord? Is it Hollywood or Jesus? You know, is it Paul or some TV show that starts with a P? I don't know. I lost it there, guys. Parenthood. There you go. Okay, <laughs> on to homosexuality. <laughs> These are the three texts that I think 
are really important and they're the battleground for discussion about homosexuality. You have Leviticus 20.13, a man shall not lie with a man as he lies with a woman, it is an abomination, you shall stone them. And the verses right before also stone other people for other things, so it's not like this one's like exceedingly singled out as particularly heinous. It's just like randomly gets a mention, like, hey, don't do that. And then uh, Romans 1, 26 and 27 address the subject where Paul the Apostle talks about men exchanging their natural relations with women and they're consumed with passion and women also doing the same thing. And he calls it shameless acts, the act of homosexual sex, a shameless act. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 just lists off a whole bunch of sins. Again, it doesn't single out homosexuality. The Bible never makes a big deal out of homosexuality. It mentions it among other sins, but it's not, it wasn't something that was really all that common in their culture. It was more common in the Greco-Roman culture, which is why you see it in Romans and 1 Corinthians, right? But even there, it's not like singled out as this horrible thing that is impossible to imagine, and it's like going to destroy everything. It's more like, well, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And it says, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's listing it among other sins as well. Which brings me to a point about the whole subject of homosexuality, which is, do you believe... I have such a great video to show you, but we don't have time for it. Do you believe that it's possible for someone who's attracted to the same gender to become, to continue in that feeling, but not act on it and be a Christian? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right? What is the sin? The sin is the sex act itself. It's not, it's just like I'm pre-programmed to be attracted to women that I'm not even married to. What do I do with that? Do I go have sex with every woman I'm attracted to? No, I control my mind, right? That's what you do. You do it, I do it. So if I was attracted to the same gender, I would have to control my mind there and say, I'm sorry, you can't just go and do whatever you feel like. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not this like, you know, and I think we need to get over any kind of homophobic stuff that we have because it's not, in the Christian subculture, it's lifted up as this horrible thing. This, in the scripture, it's not. In the scripture, it's a sin. It'll keep you out of the kingdom. So you need to repent of it. And now let's move on and live for God. You know, and I think if somebody, and I, I know people like this, if somebody is only attracted to the same gender and they say, because of Christ, I'm going to be single for life, I think that person's a hero. That's somebody that's willing to sacrifice their own sexual enjoyment or whatever in order to follow Christ. Because Christ, and especially the Apostle Paul, make it clear in the Old Testament as well, that that uh, behavior is not biblical. It's not what God wants for us. And a lot of our reasoning for homosexuality is rooted in creation theology, not in secular argumentation. I think you could try to make a secular case for health reasons, but ultimately our authority for condemning homosexuality is that the scripture condemns homosexuality. So this isn't really even a, to a topic for discussion. Really the topic for discussion is are these scriptures authoritative? And that's why I spent so much time on that, because not just homosexuality, you could take any number of other controversial issues of our time, and if you can establish the Bible's authoritative, 
then you've got your warrant and your backing for that position that you have. Did you have a question? Yeah. It's really good to understand that the people that want to live for Christ and that do have those sexual tendencies or whatever word you want to use, it's, it's really good to understand that and be open-minded about that because I know there's a lot of people that are completely against that. Like, even if you have a tendency, and then, you know, it doesn't matter anything about it. It's like they're, you know, they're so judgmental about it. Mm -hmm. using that word. Can you describe that action that is? Well, there's a lot of judgmentalism on both sides of it. There are a lot of homosexuals that are very inappropriate and unkind towards Christians because they're convinced that we we're, we're guilty of hate speech or something like that. And the thing is, that's a caricature. That's not really where we're coming from. Not at all. I don't have any time, so i got to cut you off. Sorry about that. Secular arguments against pornography. Obviously, the Scripture condemns pornography when Jesus says that it's the only thing that can uh, legitimately cause a divorce. Right? So obviously, pornea is very bad. There are plenty of Scriptures that say to be pure. Right? But there are also secular arguments against pornography. And there are these secular websites that will help you get over porn. And they're completely unrelated to the Bible or God. The first is what they call the Coolidge effect, which leads to addiction and escalation of novelty. And that is that uh, you are less satisfied with the more exposure you have. And then it takes more and more to satisfy you. Number two, porn causes intense feelings of shame and guilt. And it messes up your marriage later on because it sets unrealistic expectations, it makes the man feel like he's inadequate, it makes the woman feel like she's inadequate. And uh, number four is it can cause serious addiction. Pornography degrades women from equally created in God's image to just being an object used for pleasure. And you know what? It dim diminishes your attraction for real women or men. You know, obviously this goes e either way although it's more prevalent among men. And it diminishes your drive for life. The pornography industry, the sex industry, not just porn, but the sex industry is the biggest industry in the world. It's bigger than the NBA and the NFL and the MLB combined. Hollywood puts out 507 videos each year. The pornography world puts out 13,000 videos each year. The, the pornography world puts out $13 billion in profit. Hollywood combined only makes $8.8 billion in profit. At any moment, there are 30 million unique visitors to porn sites. Half of the internet is porn related. Half of every website. 25%, one in four daily searches in the United States is for pornography. One in, one in four. Searches. Like, think of how many times you type something into Google. 25%. The U.S. is by far the top producer of pornographic DVDs and websites. Every 39 minutes, the U.S. puts out a new porn film. 20% of American men admit accessing porn at work. Here are the stats for Christian men. Christian men 18 to 30. 77% of Christian men from 18 to 30 look at porn at least once a month. This is Christian men. 36% look at it every day. That's one in three. There's more than three of us in the room. So some one of us is looking at it every day right in this room here. <laughs> Not to turn up the heat or anything, guys. For Bible-believing, born-again Christians, 54% look at it once a month. 
as people that are committed to the authority of Scripture. My point is not to scare you, but to say that pornography is not a small thing. It's a huge thing. It's a serious struggle. It's something I've struggled with in the past. Probably every guy struggled with it. It's in our face. It's a demon you got to battle. You can win that fight, but you got to look at it and you got to take it seriously and you got to take precautions. Most guys are exposed by the age of 10. That's another fact I had. I cut that one because of time. <laughs> all right, uh, last thing is gender roles and I have all kinds of statistics about that, secular statistics, but I want to just give you a word here, complementarian view, which is the idea that uh, men and women are equal heirs of salvation, but with different functions. So the complementarian view of gender is that God made men and women differently and gave men and women different roles, especially within marriage, so that they would complement each other. Men are not the same as women. Men have 25% thicker skin than women do and 50% more average upper body strength. What does that equip us to do, guys? To be farmers and fighters. But in a society where farming is driving a tractor and fighting is squeezing a gun, there aren't really many advantages that are so obvious anymore about that. Women's advantages, as far as their ability to communicate, their ability to have relational intelligence, far outstrips us. You don't say women are better than men because they can have babies. I think that's a dumb thing to say. Or men are better than women because we can lift more weight or something, right? That's not a, a Christian way to approach the thing. And, and to say that we're all the same is not true either, right? We're not all the same. We're different. The biblical view is that we are equal heirs of salvation, but we have different roles. And the roles that men play, we're uniquely suited to. And the roles that women play, they're uniquely suited to. And when they work together, it expresses this Christ in the church reality. I'll just throw that scripture up there. Ephesians 5. Uh, I don't know the exact verses, but at the end of 5. Okay. <laughs> All right. 31 to 33. I think it, yeah, well, I think it starts even before there. But the scripture commands women to respect their husbands, and it commands men to love their wives. And, you know, there's a clear difference in what is commanded there because we are different. Our, our minds work differently. Men tend to have more deviation from the standard intelligence. Women tend to have more average intelligence. Does, does that mean because you run into a dumb guy that all guys are dumb or that you run into a genius guy, all guys are smart? No. We just have, happen to have more variation, and women tend to have more standard intelligence. It's, it, it might be an advantage in one place and a disadvantage in another. You know what I mean? It's a complementarian view. So that's what I wanted to say about that. There are a lot of jokes about male-female differences, and they're really funny. But I didn't have any in my notes, and we're out of time anyhow. So I did want to say that I thank you guys for sitting through 20 hours of Sean Finnegan. It, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on myself, but you know what? This, is, this stuff is important, this apologetics. A lot of what I've given you in this class is an introduction. You know what I mean? Some of the things we've really gone into depth, like God's existence in the Bible, we really went into depth. But a lot of these things I've just given you an introduction, and hey, if you have questions going forward, shoot me an email. And I'll be glad to uh, point you in a, a direction that can help. 
If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.